This is Muslim in Plain Sight. I'm Anissa Khalifa. And I'm Khadija Khalil. Join us as we look back at 20 years of the war on terror and how our world changed as we came of age. Hi, and welcome back. I'm Anissa. In this episode, we were very excited to talk to author G. Willow Wilson. We discussed her journey to Islam and how 9-11 upended it for a while, what it meant to come of age as people were literally being disappeared from our communities for being Muslim, and how Islam has informed her work. It was a delightful conversation. As we mentioned before, Muslim in Plain Sight will be airing bi-weekly on Mondays, and we'd love for you to email us your 9-11 stories or any reflections that you have on the 20 years since at muslimandplainsight at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support the show, you can donate to us, simply click the link in the description, or you can rate and or review the show on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply tell your family and friends about the show. And with that, let's get into this wonderful interview. Assalamu alaikum. I'm Anissa. Assalamu alaikum. I'm Khadija. And today we're very excited to have with us G. Willow Wilson. Assalamu alaikum, Willow. Wa alaikum salam. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. We are, we like, are so, so excited. excited. <laughs> I know. We're like trying to be professional. <laughs> we're pretending we're not. In stereo. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so um, if you live under a rock and you don't know who Willow is, I will just introduce her a little bit. So G. Willow Wilson is a Hugo World Fantasy and American Book Award-winning author of novels and comics. Her articles, graphic novels, and books reflect her extraordinary cross-cultural experiences with remarkable originality and insight. She is the author of three books, multiple graphic novels, and three comic book series, including the groundbreaking Miss Marvel, which featured the first Muslim superhero in the Marvel Comics universe, and of which I am a huge fan. Most of the world... The people who aren't living under rocks, they know you through Miss Marvel. But I actually, like, quote unquote, met you through the Butterfly Mosque way back in 20, is it 10 or 11? Yeah, about then. It would have been 2010. And you were in Egypt, was it in 2003? Yeah, I was there from 2003 to 2008 full time and then then part time for several years after that. And we still go back and visit. It's just a lot less frequent now that we have two kids with school and everything else. I was in Egypt in 2006 to 2007. Uh, oh, so we overlapped. Yes. Like the first time I read this, I was like, I could smell the fool. And <laughs> I was rereading this in preparation for this interview. And I, again, it just took me back to those early days of where you have no idea where to buy food. All you can eat is like bread and olives (laughs) and you're stilted for her that nobody understands. I was just like, oh. (laughs) Oh, well, I'm I'm really glad that it resonated with you. I have given this book as a gift to so many people. Really? Like the number of times I've bought this, so many people. Oh, wow. But we are going to get on to... I'm so sorry to derail. This no, is my no, fan no, girl please. moment. <laughs> I'm going to hand it back to Anissa to do the professional things now. 
<laughs> no, that was, I think we should start with a little bit of joy because we're going to be talking about some, some serious topics. So before we get into those serious topics, we'd like to like go back in time a little bit and ask you, who were you on the 10th of September? What a good question. Um, on the 10th of September, I was a, a fairly ordinary college student at Boston University going to class kind of deep into my own world. I was 18 and I was just very focused. You know, the the world was kind of limited to passing classes, hoping my classmates thought I was cool, Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) you know, keeping my dorm room livable. So it was a very, very small place that I was living in. What did you think the next day would bring? I don't know that I thought it would be any different from the ones preceding it. I, I think that was what was so shocking about the ad- events of that day was that there was no lead up. You know, there was no particularly bellicose stuff in the news. It wasn't like the run up to World War I or something where everybody knows there's war coming. Mm. Uh, it, it just seemed very ordinary. Uh, and, you know, I think if you were to ask me and probably a lot of people the day before, what is the strangest world event that you can imagine happening tomorrow? that what happened on 9-11 would never have even showed up on your list of things. It was it was just that far outside of everyone's expectation. Mm. Before we go into the actual day itself, I kind of want to ask you, because I've just come fresh from rereading the first few chapters of um, Butterfly Musk, and you talk in there about how at that exact time that you were experiencing a big internal, um, I'm not sure if event is the right word, but you were going through this process <laughs> where yeah. you basically were Muslim inside yeah. and then 9-11. And so you go on to actually describe the experience of what happened on the day. Is that memory still as vivid? And like, how do you view that experience now, looking back from a sort of Muslim lens? You know, it's interesting. I'm I'm now 39, so these you know events are are 20 years in the past, and I think that that period of life for a lot of people is about figuring out what kind of adult you're going to be. Mm. You know what your values are, what what profession you're going to have. How are you supposed to live in the world as sort of a separate being from your parents and sort of the home that you've always known? Uh, you know whether you're going to break with or or conform to whatever the expectations were that you would be as as an adult. And I think for a lot of people, it's a time of, of sort of questioning and exploration. And uh, for me, I knew that I was I was sort of falling into religion in a way that was not usual, you know, for my peer group. It was it was sort of profoundly old fashioned. <laughs> Most mm. of the people I know who were going through uh, you know, sort of late teenage angst at that time were going in the opposite direction. Mm. Um, you know, if they'd grown up in a particular faith, they were now questioning that faith. They were breaking with their their sort of faith communities or birth communities. And so, I, you know, a lot of people in my life were running away and I was running toward. Uh, so I didn't really have anybody to talk to. <laughs> and uh, looking back now, it's amazing to think of the sort of level of idealism that I was experiencing at that time, you know, the, the sense that uh, you have to follow whatever your your path is or, you know, like what you think the right thing is to do, even if it takes you so outside the realm of your own experience that 
you know, as an adult looking back, you'd be like, wow, if I had to do the same thing over again at this age, I would not have had the guts, the strength, you know, sort of the lack of, I don't know mm. what boundaries <laughs> to <laughs> do the same thing all over again. So yeah, I, I, I think I was being propelled by youth in, in ways that I couldn't perceive at the time. Yeah, there's a certain audacity you have as a teenager that you like never oh really gosh. regain. You never really regain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is definitely <laughs> true. That is definitely true. You described yourself as living a fairly upper middle class American life at that time. And as we've said, on the brink of conversion. And in your book, you later talk about how embattled you felt by the events of 9-11 and that that caused you to sort of retreat to the American identity that you had grown up with and away from Islam. How do you understand that duality now? Like, does that still feel like opposite things to you or have you found a middle ground and what remains unresolved? You know, that's that's a really good question. Yeah, I I did feel very conflicted after 9-11 because I thought, how could I have been that wrong? You know, if the dialogue that was going on about Islam at the time in the press uh, is what Islam really is. How could I have been that wrong? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I, I was just sort of like shocked that, well, you know, these people probably know a lot more than I do. These are experts. These are adults. These are people who seem to know what they're saying and, and have degrees and all of this stuff. And they're saying Islam is X, Y, and Z. And, you know, talking about what jihad is and how American values are fundamentally incompatible with Islam and war with Islam and all of this stuff. Um, who am I to contradict them? You know, these are the, these are the experts. These are the adults in the room. I'm just a kid. And I think there was a level of shame uh, of thinking, you know, that you had to kind of choose. There, That was really a, a huge undercurrent at the time. It's, it was with us or against us. It was yes. go to war or, you know, you're not a patriot. Uh, you know, we had, we had to have new names for things. You know, there were French fries were freedom fries (laughs) for the simple reason that France didn't want to join in the war effort. It was a huge duality. There really was nothing in the middle. It felt like, and the lone voices of sanity at the time now really stand out. When you look back, the people who are saying, Hey, we have to slow down. Maybe we should think about this a little bit more. Uh, you know, maybe being anti-war is, is not about being anti-American. Maybe it's because it's a really bad idea, yeah. <laughs> a fundamentally bad idea. But you, there really was no middle ground at the time. And uh, it was quite shocking to, to sort of go from, you know, one day I'm, you know, taking Arabic classes and sort of reading the Quran on my own. And all of these things seem very strange and obscure. Uh, to the next day, everybody being like, oh, man, how do I get into your Arabic class? It's full because, you know, now everybody who's taking international relations wants to learn Arabic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like literally the day before 9-11, there were like 15 people in my Arabic class. A lot of them, uh, you know, had parents from the diaspora and were just sort of trying to learn their mother tongue. Our textbooks were like from the 1960s and would keep referencing these cassette tapes that no longer existed. (laughs) Like it was just so, it was considered a very obscure, random thing to be interested in. And then overnight that changed. And, you know, all these people started showing up who were like baby feds. (laughs) Um, That's scary. Oh, it was. It was scary. Yeah. Scary is the word. I mean, as someone who has been in like Asian and Middle Eastern studies departments for like my whole academic career, like undergrad and grad school, it's amazing how like these sort of area studies departments are literally created because of where our country is doing war, right? Mm -hmm. And like who they need to study in order to fight them. And you're like, 
not realizing that as a young student, just being like, I want to learn about other cultures. Mm-hmm. And you walk in and it's something very different. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I did not yeah. think of it that way. You know what fascinates me about your particular journey is that, you know, for the most part, people tend to come to Islam through sort of the back door of culture. Mm-hmm. But what's so interesting, I find, in your story is that you kind of come at Islam through the front door of Tawheed, which mm-hmm. is just like, and then you discovered all of the culture and then you discovered like all of the crazy people. Like people always say, if you want to know about Islam, don't look at Muslims, right? Um, but I don't know, like, did you get that message? Is that something you heard from anybody? You know, I I think this is one of the ways in which the Muslim community in the US, but also kind of globally has really shifted in the last 20 years. Because I think when I was young, uh, it was still very much the age of dawah, you know, like, yeah, that's definitely. a huge part, especially in the West of Muslim communities, this idea that Islam is for everyone, everybody, mm. no matter where they're from, would be better off as a Muslim. Uh, you know, there's there's a whole like convert pipeline in, in mosques. <laughs> it was a huge it was a huge thing. Dawah mm. was was a major element, I think, of, mm. of uh, Muslim communities at that time. And so at the time, it did not feel weird at all. It didn't feel weird at all uh, because we were fun- fundamentally in a different era. Now that's changed. And now I think absolutely that is true. And that's actually a very good observation is that most people who are coming to Islam now are returning. You know, it's it's part of their heritage. It's part of their family history. And maybe they sort of fell away as children or young adults. And now they're sort of coming back mm. because it's it's a part of their heritage that they want to reconnect I with. I see that a lot in my work as well. Yeah. Which is an Islamic bookshop. So, <laughs> so interesting. Oh my gosh, you have the best job. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> we also saw a lot of people in the days and like months after 9-11 becoming Muslim because they decided to find out about Islam after they saw it in the in the news. Like we had people coming to our mosque. We were in Greensboro, North Carolina at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents were literally going to church every Sunday to talk to a different Christian community about what does Islam actually, you know, teach? And we had someone who came to the mosque to convert and was like, yeah, I actually thought people hate this thing so much. There must be some truth in it. Because usually when something's true, there's a lot of resistance, hatred against it. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting perspective. (laughs) I think that's a really good point. I I think, you know, there was this weird sort of blip immediately post 9-11 of, of, conversions, it seems like, yes. anecdotally yes. based on the number of people mm-hmm. I know who are about my age mm-hmm. or a little bit older, um, you know, who converted around that time. And I think it is because, you know, on on September 10th, most people really had no idea what Islam mm-hmm. was, much less that it was the world's second largest religion. And they would have been shocked to hear that. And then this thing happens and there's an immediate reaction and people are like, well, I need to go find out what this is. Mm-hmm. And there'll be a certain amount of people who are like, oh, wow, you know what? this is actually amazing. This is very different from what I thought it was going to be. And it it speaks to me in a way I wasn't expecting. And do you know what also happened in that time? In that sort of, it was almost, I would say, a 10-year stretch. Mm-hmm. The conversion memoir, it became a thing. <laughs> like, it was like for a good at least 10 years, they were our bestsellers. That's true. I hadn't thought about that. Wow, interesting. Your book is part of this sort of genre and... Trend, yeah. <laughs> 
not in a trivializing way, but you know, the books that really affected people, there were like a, maybe a handful. There, there were, in terms of titles, there were many, but yeah. the ones that were constantly moving and flying from the shelves, there were a few. But you yeah. know, that makes a lot of sense to me mm-hmm. because I think for people who are Muslims who were born into Islam, there was something really heartening and inspiring about seeing people come to this faith just at the moment where you're you feel like your whole identity has become like destabilized and you've become mm-hmm. like the most hated person on the face of the planet. Yeah. You know, like you're just feeling this incredible avalanche of hatred coming towards you mm-hmm. and you're like, but still someone was able to overcome that, not even to the point of being like, I don't hate you or I accept you, but also like, I actually want to believe what you believe. Mm-hmm. I also see the beauty in the thing that you find precious. Yeah, it is an interesting thing. I, I feel like I was not brave about it. I, I fundamentally ran away. You know, I <laughs> like to Egypt. I didn't stay in the US. <laughs> Where it caught like, you. <laughs> I fled. I fled the country. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I, I cannot claim to be anywhere near as brave as the people who stayed in the US after this and had to deal with all of this immediate backlash and the stigma and the hate crimes and the, the wave of just complete unhinged hatred that that followed that you know that was that was very scary to me so I, I I literally ran away from it I literally went ran away to North Africa and hung out there you know for for five years and I mean then to, I- to be um honest like that's a pretty brave thing to do in itself as someone right. who you know is totally unfamiliar with the culture and you had to kind of just make your way there from scratch so especially when they had become the enemy at that point yeah so. You ran to the arms yeah. of the enemy. <laughs> I suppose so. Although, you know, like Egypt, to, to be fair, I mean, it's really interesting how this dialogue unfolded after 9-11 because the people who we decided to make war on versus the people who were actually in those planes were two completely different sets of people. Yep. So there mm-hmm. really wasn't any like particular, uh, you know, fear about being in Egypt. There was no sense that we've been attacked by Egypt, you know, or, mm-hmm. or you know, or by Saudi Arabia, because even though the majority of the hijackers were from those countries, uh, because the response was so... It was really just bizarre, you know, like it, it was clearly being fueled by agendas, you know, yes. and not that people should have had hatred for Saudis as a whole or Egyptians as a whole. It's just that those countries never even entered the discussion, really. And in fact, you know, when I moved to Egypt, there were plenty of people in my life who had no idea that Egypt was a Muslim country because they associate Egypt with like pharaohs and pyramids. pyramids. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So even then, you know, there mm. were people who just had no idea. <laughs> So you talked a little bit in your memoir about how you had this kind of fear of telling the people that you loved and, you know, the, the hurt that you felt from people's reactions when you revealed that you were Muslim. And did that play a part in your decision to write a memoir? Like, why did you decide at that time in like 2009, 10 to release this memoir? You know, um, I, I originally didn't have any intention to write a memoir. And it, funnily enough, that book remains the thing that I've written with which I have the most ambivalent relationship. Oh, wow. Um, I was just sort of writing, now we would call it a newsletter. You know, now it would be on Substack. But at the time, it was just like an old-fashioned email list where you entered people's emails manually, <laughs> one by one. Yeah. <laughs> but I was just sort of writing about my experiences in Egypt back to like, you know, a group of friends and family back home just to sort of keep them apprised of what was going on. And also because 
I was really excited about what I was doing and also to reassure people that I was still alive and, you know, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. And it was, it was sort of people in my immediate friends and family who were kind of publishing adjacent who, who said, you know what, you should collect these letters that you've been writing home and, and put them into a memoir because I think people would be interested to hear now at this time with everything that's happening about what your experiences have been because they're so in opposition to what we hear on the news. And it was it was a very bizarre experience. I I didn't really know anything about querying agents. I, I didn't really have a shape for the book in my mind. And and so I just sort of sent what I had to different agents in the United States and most of them never even wrote back, but one did. <laughs> but they regret that now. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? Uh but, you know, like there was uh, one of them wrote back and and he said, I think there's something here. Uh, and it just kind of went from there. But the interesting thing about that is that this book, which is so personal, and I'm not usually a TMI kind of person, uh, was sort of from the beginning shaped by others. So, you know, it was not a particularly comfortable book to write. I felt like it was necessary at the time because even nine or 10 years out from 9-11, the, the rhetoric was getting worse in many ways, yeah. which shocked me when I came back to the U.S. I was like, we've had some distance. We've seen what uh, just an absolutely horrific disaster. These wars have been maybe attitudes have changed when in fact they just become more entrenched. Mm. Yeah. And they would get even worse, you and know, after another worse. 10 years. Yeah. Yes. One of the reasons that this has become a book that I give to people a lot is because it's a way of like answering everything, all of those difficult questions without having to put in the emotional labor. I'm basically borrowing your emotional labor. To- <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad to do that. I'm, I'm happy if it's, if it's kept people from having to explain a bunch of stuff, then I think it's worth it. <laughs> you know, I, I find it so interesting that you said you were writing this sort of like email list because I'm actually currently working on a memoir myself. Oh, wonderful. And it's so for me, it was like not to go too much into my own personal stuff, but like I became very severely ill in 2002, just maybe seven or eight months after 9-11. And I was 15 at the time. And so those two things kind of went side by side for me in a weird way. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking a few months ago, like it's been 20 years since both of those things mm-hmm. altered my life in really crazy ways. And I have all of these journals and like, there was a blog that I wrote for, you know, I was going to spend a year in Qatar and like, I would write these literally for the same exact reason, just telling my family back home, like what was happening and all about the culture in, in Doha and like, kind of what I was observing and feeling. And and I had to cut that short because I was about to die and they had to airlift me back to, you know, the U.S. But like, oh I'm using all of this now, right? Like I'm kind of going through it. But it's interesting how like these letters that you write to your loved ones to transform that into something that's for public eye. I, like I have a lot of similarly kind of conflicted feelings. I'm like, am I putting too much of my own self out there? But also like mm-hmm. it feels so important, especially in this moment. Well, I'm excited to read it. That sounds really moving and and necessary, frankly, you know, given our current state of affairs. Inshallah, I hope it's beneficial, not only because of the 9-11 related stuff, but also because I feel like so many people have gone through so much in the last year and a half, two years with like illness and isolation. And for me, that was like something I'd already experienced for like 10, 15 years. And so for me, it was like, oh, I'm just going back to that, you know, Mm -hmm. but I have a lot of 
pain in there, but also like tools that I developed. So I'm hoping that maybe those would be like helpful to other people or just help them feel like they're seen in a way. Mm-hmm. And I think that is what memoir can do, right? Like with the butterfly mosque too, there were so many sentences where I was like, yes, this yes. is something that yes. I needed to read in mm-hmm. a book that was written by someone else. And it was really beautiful in that way. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that it was valuable to you. That makes it worth it. I think memoirs are the most difficult thing to write for exactly the reasons that you say, you know, like they're so personal you're, you're sort of turning something that ordinarily you would only talk about with your closest family and friends into something for public consumption. Mm-hmm. And that is terrifying. <laughs> and you're full of doubts. And it's it's a very difficult thing to, to write. So I, I salute you for that. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it. <laughs> oh, I, I would. Yeah, inshallah. I sound like we just panic text. I'm like, what if everyone hates this? Oh my it's gosh. too depressing. <laughs> uh, yes, I know what you mean. <laughs> It's definitely going to be deep, inshallah. I've read parts of it and I'm just blown away even by those parts. Okay, I will stop derailing this conversation now. No, not at all. I just want to add one light note before we sort of um, re-rail. I don't know what the opposite of derailing is, but because I never do the opposite of derailing. Get back on track. <laughs> <I'll write that. laughs> I like re-railing. <laughs> right? It, it rolls off the tongue. Yeah. Apart from all of the deep reasons that The Butterfly Mask is a meaningful book to me, rereading it now, which is like 10 years since the first time I read it, there's something like extraordinary and transporting in going back to the early 2000s. Because like sending emails to your friends, I, you know, these are things that you have to be a certain age to really feel and like I'm two years younger than you so it's it's the same kind of era and especially for us and we're going to talk about this later I hope if we have time being in that sort of generational gap you know Mm -hmm. where you you've kind of between the cracks of these two big things people born in the early 80s all have this kind of weird non-identity crisis going on as in a crisis of Mm non-identity when it comes to generational belonging and I love what you said in um, your interview you did a podcast with Nadette I think and you called yourself the sort of elder statesman of the millennials (laughs) which is just (laughs) such (laughs) such a great way of putting it so sort of bringing us back to 2021 I guess the idea of Muslim identity is so broad now and you know everyone has a different understanding of it what is your understanding of, you know, what Muslim identity is and what role did your time in Egypt play in forming that identity? I actually have been stepping back from making any kind of judgment whatsoever about what Muslim identity means now, because I think there's been so much change over the last 20 years. I mean, that's a generation. 20 years is a whole generation. And, you know, I, I think Immediately after 9-11, there was this sense of we all have to have each other's backs. We we all need to be on the same page. And, you know, regardless of what kinds of conflicts are going on within Muslim communities, we have to present a united front because everybody is under attack. So there was a sense of solidarity, I think, across ideological lines, uh, you know, cultural lines. Even religious lines, considering... Yeah, even religious lines. Yeah, because, you know, even though like the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and a lot of these, you know, sort of hyper Sunni groups were actively oppressing Shiites. 
Uh, nobody in the U.S. knows the difference between a Shiite and a Sunni. Um, <laughs> Half the Sunnis don't either. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> so, so you know, like the 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 even though you know a lot of Shia people were like, we had nothing to do with this. Like, it's your problem. You know, we were all sort of lumped together, and and the Sikhs. You know, don't forget the Sikhs. And the Sikhs. Oh my God, they went through so much. Bless yeah. them. Yeah, that's just. I mean, yeah. and the amount of grace that so many Sikh people have extended, mm. despite the fact that they caught all of this stray bullets. Around the time of the shootings of the Asian women in Georgia, there was a lot of talk about like Islamophobic anti-Asian violence as well. And there was a member of the Sikh community who said, we decided early on um, after 9-11 that we weren't going to push back against these kind of hate crimes by saying we're not Muslim, mm -hmm. but say like, it's wrong. That's what we were going to say. Full not stop. by like yeah. disassociating themselves from us, which a lot of other communities did. They were like, I'm not Muslim. Don't blame it on me. And it's me. like it's yeah. a reflexive <laughs> movement. Exactly. But the Sikh community was like, this is wrong. It doesn't really matter that we're not Muslim. Like they didn't foreground that. So big props it's, to them. It was really extraordinary. I mean, it, it, it takes a lot of courage, I think. It does. To, to reframe it as a moral issue when you could easily say, this is not my problem. It, it, just extraordinary courage. And uh, I mean, it, it just goes to show how profoundly unsettled that whole era was when all of these groups of people who formerly would not have a whole lot to do with each other are kind of forced into a sort of solidarity because they're all facing the same threat. Yeah. And that's not to say that that doesn't exist now. I mean, like there's still a massive, you know, threat against Sikh communities because still these, these same kinds of mistaken identity hate crimes because you know what is hate if not ignorance with guns exactly it, it's still going on it's still going on but i feel like at the time it was so acute that you know, even now i have tons of friends who are uh shia or ismaili or ahmadi and i i forget that they are their own distinct community because we were all in the trenches together uh because hateful people do not make those distinctions no. And so everybody was sort of facing the same thing. And so there was there was a, a weird kind of community in that, okay, now we're sort of forced into a position where we have to have that, that solidarity. And I, I think there was a level of understanding uh, and respect that came out of that in an odd way that was, you know, if there was anything positive to come out of that, it was that. It was that sense of solidarity across mm. ideological lines that formerly would have separated mm. people. And everyone sort of having to be ambassadors for ourselves and also yes. for each other because we didn't really have any other choice. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in The Butterfly Mask, you talk about this article that you wrote about the women's subway car and how oh, God. I just remember, I just, you know, just reading like the response. I mean, it felt like it could have happened yesterday, honestly. Just yeah. that whole, you know, you write an article, you're trying to say one thing, the internet backlash says something totally different. Um, and then you're just like, why do I even try? And why like, do I even try? <laughs> in the context of that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but like, how do you feel now? You know, like 20 years on, how do you feel about the possibilities of like using writing to combat Islamophobia? Uh, you've talked about the positive reactions to Ms. Marvel. I was honestly shocked by the positive reaction. We, I was very excited about Ms. Marvel. Is it no? It's Miss Marvel. I'm sorry. I think it is Miss. Isn't it Miss? Is it Miss? Yeah. There's a whole history. There's a whole history. A history. <laughs> I was really excited. My friends were really excited, but I didn't expect like white people to like it the way they mm. did. I didn't expect you know other com minority communities to love it as much as they did. So, do you think that like stories, whether that's you know fiction or nonfiction, is that a, like a more effective way to combat 
hatred than journalism? Or does it just like play a different part? Like how can writing or can writing do this? I I think it can. I I think the different forms of writing that you've described kind of complement each other ideally uh, because they serve different functions. What's nice about fiction is that it kind of bypasses the rational brain and goes straight to your heart. Mm. You're, you're not sort of looking at it through the lens of, is this information true and verifiable or not? You're empathizing with a set of characters. And so I think, you know, fiction can be powerful in that sense, in that you can take an experience distinct to one person or one character and kind of pull out little bits that you know other people will see in their own experiences as well. Um, I think it's a great tool for creating empathy. So so yeah, I, I think it certainly has a role to play. I, I think for, for me, when I write fiction about Muslim issues or Islam specifically, what I try to do is sort of what I think J.R.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis try to do in their fiction, which is take something from their beliefs and turn it into something portable that anybody from any faith background can appreciate. Mm. You don't have to be a Christian to appreciate The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or The Hobbit, even though the authors, you know, both of them were uh, were quite religious in their own personal lives. And uh, especially in Ms. Marvel, that was something that I really wanted to do. And and Sana also is, is to sort of pull out something from Islam that would have that kind of meaning and be a source of comfort to whoever was reading the book, regardless of their mm. religious background. And that's really where good is not a thing you are, it's a thing you do came from. I was just reading that line like <laughs> half an hour ago in uh, in my Miss Marvel. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is so good. Oh, good. I'm so glad you think so. I mean, it was, it was really, Sana was pushing for what is the Muslim version of the Peter Parker with great power comes great responsibility. All great superheroes have an ethical code that you can sum up in 10 words or less. Mm. And the big question that Sana was always asking me was like, how do we say that? What would make a Muslim superhero's ethical code specific and distinct? And it took a long time to get to those two little lines, a really, really long time. And yet it just exactly condenses sort of our way of looking at how we have to be in the world, right? It's not about these like you know, essentialist notions of being good or evil, which is in some other religions. It's like about those daily acts of worship and service and intention, right? It is. It, it really is that you are sort of being asked to do things. It's it's not, it's, you know, belief is essential, but actions are also essential and you can't really have one without the other. And it, this idea that there is no guaranteed salvation that, that yes. you you do always have to be striving. There is no point at which you're like, okay, I'm a really good Muslim. Now I get to stop. I can relax. It's this constant need to better the world in whatever small way you can. And, and that was what I really was hoping would come through in that. And that I thought was particularly rele- relevant also for the age that we live in. This idea that it, it doesn't matter really what you think in the isolation of your own room. Like you can have great thoughts about everybody in the world, but what is demanded as a, of us now is action. Yes. And and I was like, yeah, you know, like this is something that I think is fundamental to Islam that could be valuable to anybody. It's like the hadith, right? Yeah. About changing yeah. things with your hand. Exactly. So as a practicing Muslim woman, one of the things that's sort of inherent in the experience is that you put your faith on display all the time. Mm-hmm. We talked in our first episode, which nobody's listened to yet, (laughs) 
<laughs> about how as Muslims we often code switch between the sort of lexicon and language that we use as Muslims when we're with Muslims and our secularized existence when we're out in the world. How have you navigated that and how differently do you think that plays out when you're in a sort of majority Muslim space or cultural space such as in Egypt? Uh, you know, I've probably navigated it poorly. That's probably the answer. <laughs> um, it's it's something that I still find difficult, not just because of prejudices and, and presuppositions among, you know, non-Muslim communities, but also because Muslim communities themselves are changing. And, you know, as, a, as somebody who does a lot of work in the public eye, some of which is directly related to Muslim experience and some of which very much isn't. You know, when I'm writing Wonder Woman, <laughs> I'm writing for a very <laughs> general audience. You know, a lot of my uh, comics and, and my other fiction, you know, might be sort of vaguely Islam flavored in some parts, but are more or less for a general audience. And, and I do find that there is a kind of bifurcation that occurs where there are ideas and a set of vocabulary and a way of being that I stop using in those scenarios, uh, you know, that I would use in, in a Muslim context at the masjid or, you know, like at prayers or in a majority Muslim social situation. But also it's been interesting to me and exciting to see that in the last five years or so, there has been a massive renaissance of Muslim fiction, largely driven by women. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there was a point a couple of years ago where there were two or three Muslim women on the New York Times bestseller list at the same time, not in the same categories, but at the same time. And, you know, like one of them uh, was a Munakaba. And like, I was like, oh, my God, you know, like, this is amazing. 20 years ago, this would have been unthinkable. It was crazy. I was like, what is happening? I mean, it's just amazing. Mashallah. But, you know, like as a result of that, I've, I've sort of I've noticed that in the last few years, there has been... I'm trying to think of a, a positive way to put this because it sounds kind of negative, but a, but a sort of a refragmentation, that defensive crouch that we were talking about that happened right after 9-11, where we were sort of all on the same team and all in the same boat has started to ease a little bit. And you see people kind of going back to Out of their, lockdown, their specific right? communities. Yes, exactly. You know, and I think for a lot of people, it's been a very positive thing because the, the flip side to the we're all in the same boat and we're all in a defensive crouch was that it kind of corresponded with a time when there was immense pressure to represent Islam as one thing, that we were all mm. going to dress the same, that, uh, you know, there's one quote unquote proper way to wear hijab. And if your specific cultural iteration of hijab does not meet those criteria, then it's not quote unquote real hijab. There was a lot of pressure to, in a weird way, not be monolithic, but to be present a united front. Yeah, not just a united front in a positive way, like we all support each other, but a united front in there is one way to be a Muslim and it's like this, you know, like it was especially, I think, in Sunni communities. And now there's this return to sort of celebrating, I think, the diversity of Muslim communities, that Islam looks very different in Malaysia versus Egypt versus in Black American historical Muslim communities versus wherever you are in the world. And it's been really amazing to see the kind of like art and conversations and forms of expression that, that have come out of that. But it's also made me, you know, as a white convert, have to kind of reconsider, okay, what what face do I put out to the world, you know, in this sort of new uh, 
new era, <laughs> you know, where <laughs> the age of Dawah is over, the age of, you know, like being Muslim is kind of one thing is over. And there is this kind of refragmentation. And, you know, like as an example, like, you know, in the years after 9-11, in a weird warped way, because of all the attention on Islam, everybody knew what hijab was mm-hmm. like you know even if they didn't know before they you knew could now. say the word and they know you what it say means the word and like the average person on the street would be like oh yeah or they say it first <laughs> or they say it first now i've gotten in the last couple of years several sort of confrontation-y emails from people who are like why are you wearing hijab that's cultural appropriation and i'm like oh <laughs> what this is new territory <laughs> that's new right? oh yeah oh yeah yeah i was like oh, wow this is my new god stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is yeah. this from Muslims or from... No, it's generally from non-Muslims. Although I will say there is, there's, I think, a non-zero number of, of younger Muslims for whom I think uh, Islam is more about heritage who are resentful, mm. I think. That's so interesting. Of, of converts for reasons that I frankly understand. You know, I, I think... Converts, especially from kind of that age of Dawah, when there was this this general call of no matter where you're from, Islam is for you. I think there were people who, frankly, uh, converted for maybe the wrong reasons. You know, like they they thought that religion could fix their problems when what they really needed were things that society should have been providing, like good mental health care and job, uh, you know, training and housing and community and all of that stuff. But instead, they chose religion, and as a result made big messes in their communities. <laughs> that was a real thing. Um, and I think the younger generation is understandably skeptical of converts in a way that I think people from my generation and that kind of age of Dawa were not. So yeah, I think mo- the the majority of sort of the cultural appropriation stuff comes from from uh, other white people. But uh, but a non-zero part of it is, is, uh, is not. It's, it's sort of from younger Muslims. So that's been an interesting thing to sort of try to very carefully navigate huh. in the past few years. It's so interesting that you frame this as, you know, the way that people come to Islam through that age of the world, because I think that happened for people who were born Muslims too. I can pinpoint Absolutely. when I became a Muslim. And I'm sure for many of us who grew up um, in Muslim households at that time, there were names, you know, there were household names, people like Ahmed Dida, you know, Hamza Yusuf. Mm -hmm. There were people who were doing the lecture circuit. And, you know, you would go to those conferences and all of those things. And you had to reach like an intellectual point where you were like, actually, I agree with, like you choose to be Muslim at one point. Yeah. For yourself and not because right. your parents raised you that way. But you had to make that decision for so yourself. So we also experienced that though. Is this just like millennials ruining everything again? <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of millennials. <laughs> you know, one of the reasons that we started this podcast is that there's this weird way that our generation of Muslims that were just coming into adulthood at the time sort of became silenced. And people younger than us are very outspoken. And people who were older than us at the time were kind of forced to speak out and, you know, to condemn Mm -hmm. and to represent the community and all of that. But for us, like, not only were we coming of age when 9-11 happened, we were also coming of age as the internet became a thing. And so we're kind of like straddling these two gigantic destabilizing events in our culture. What about now? You know, like, what's our generation's role now? There's a lot said about us. Millennials, (laughs) Millennials, <laughs> but what are what should we be doing? Like, what where do we fit in all of this? I know that's a really big question, but I have an answer. I ask myself that every single day. You know, like it's it's, it's kind of 
I think if you're a millennial or like us kind of stuck in this neither nor, mm -hmm. you kind of wake up and go on the internet and you're like, what are we ruining today? <laughs> like, what are we, we really doing for now? <laughs> uh, so there's, I think the word you use destabilizing, I think is, is really, really descriptive because it's exactly that. You kind of never quite know where you stand. Hmm. You're always sort of reacting to currents in the culture, it seems like, rather than shaping those currents. And I think you're exactly right. You know, you look at sort of younger younger Muslims who don't remember 9-11 because they grew up, they either weren't born then or they were so young when it happened that it was simply an event that took over their whole childhood. And they were so young that they they didn't have, I think, that feeling that we did of, oh my God, we have to say something. We have to be ambassadors. We have to do all this stuff. They just grew up with that stigma and they're rightfully furious. They're like, we had nothing to do with anything. We were babies. We weren't even born. And yet we're getting In profiled. fairness, neither did we. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so that prompts them to be very outspoken, you know, in a way that I respect because, because they're absolutely right. You know, none yeah. of this is their fault. And yet they had to bear that burden. Um, whereas I think people our age were just sort of frozen, you know, like we froze and we were like, what, what just happened? This is not what I had planned for. I don't, I don't know how to fix this. Mm. And, you know, maybe even a measure of guilt. How could I have not seen that this was going to happen? Like, how could I have not predicted the backlash? How could, what if I had done X? What if I had said Y, mm. you know, mm. there's that sense of stunned re-examining of the past. And I think that's what those events do. They change the past. They change the way that you view the past. But what really is very encouraging to me is that much of this renaissance in Muslim fiction is being driven by people roughly our age, maybe a little bit older, a little bit younger. And I think that what that represents is our generation finally finding its voice and saying, okay, I, I, I know what to do now. I know who I am now in this unstable mm -hmm. world. I know what I want to bring to the table. And I finally have the confidence to do that. And, and that's been really wonderful to see. This is also one of the things that Anissa and I were observing as we sort of came into this project, which is that people our age, they have begun speaking about this kind of now, you know, in the last couple of years. So we're trying to understand in the intervening sort of 18 to 20 years, the, the time that it took us to process all of those things. And of course, all of the things that we experienced in that sort of age where, you know, we had these terrible recessions, there was, you know, war followed by war followed by war and all of just, just the life stuff that you're struggling to deal with. And then where a generation would be like in our late, mid to late thirties coming into our forties. And perhaps now we've found the stability, not just emotionally and internally, but also a kind of external stability that allows us to sit down and therapize ourselves by doing mm -hmm. this work. Yeah, because we also like came of age and there was like a massive financial crisis. And unlike our parents who had like amazingly stable careers that set them up for life, people change their careers multiple times. You know, like it's just not the same kind of landscape economically either. So there's been a lot going on. <laughs> A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. It's there's there's no solid ground. I think I, I think that was at least for me, the sensation of the last 20 years is there's nowhere to put your foot for all of those reasons, because mm -hmm. the political situation is so unstable. Economically, we're unstable. Everything is up in the air. And and um, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Is that it's only now 
that we're saying, okay. <laughs> <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> yeah. And you've said elsewhere also that in some ways it's the passion and the vitality of the younger generation that's created the space where we can put our feet down. I absolutely think that's true. I, I think it's because the younger generation is so outspoken and has been successful in many ways in, in making their voices heard in a way that I think a lot of people were afraid to do initially, that that's given the older generation the courage to say like, well, hey, if they can do it, maybe I can too. So I, I think this is one of those situations in which that influence has gone backward through time as well as mm -hmm. forward through time. And uh, I, I think, yeah, that the unapologetic nature of, of the younger generation has had a positive impact on on us. It's so true. Like my sister was a toddler when 9-11 happened. We have a large age gap. And she's so solid in her identity mm -hmm. in the way that I am not, you know, and mm -hmm. I, I get really inspired by her sometimes because she just is herself and she doesn't care mm -hmm. if someone is like giving her dirty looks in the parking lot of the Harris yeah. Theater. She just lives her life, you know, and <laughs> right. I'm like, yeah, yeah, like, why don't I do that? <laughs> why am I noticing that somebody is being racist towards me? Like, just move on, you know? <laughs> That's so true. There's a kind of maybe, is it? a burden of fear that has been put on us from because of what happened in the aftermath of 9-11 and the way that we were profiled. And also our youth made it more difficult for us to take certain risks because our mm. fears were greater and our power was like, like our social currency as we weren't adults in the world for a lot of that time. So with all of those things that kind of creates a social conditioning that we've been basically working on undoing. And it's yes. true. We do look at the, the younger generation and we're like, why aren't they scared? Why are they <laughs> unafraid to yell back? Or why are they not afraid of the things that we're afraid of? Yeah. And that makes you think maybe we don't need to be that afraid, right? I, I think there's something to that. But I, you know, I think... Our fears in the years after 9-11, I think, were quite justified because, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I barely know anybody in the Muslim community who did not have some sort of run-in, a scary run-in with law enforcement. Had them, yes. Yeah, absolutely. There was no one who was untouched. Yeah. Nobody was untouched. Nobody was untouched. It was really, truly terrifying. Yeah, it wasn't like one person that you heard about. It was like literally everyone you knew in some way got affected, whether it was by the government or by like other people. Yeah, absolutely. And it made you suspicious of everybody you interacted with because there were informants everywhere. You know, there was the sense of, you know, sort of McCarthy-esque. Yes. Is somebody who just has a grudge against me going to call the FBI tip line? You know, am I going to wake up and somebody's knocking on my door? Because you knew people who that happened to. And, you know, to this day, there, there are families, uncles in their 60s who were disappeared because they put a $20 bill in the wrong charity box at the masjid. Like it was it was that bad. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think the fact that, number one, there's a lot more scrutiny now on the behavior of law enforcement because of the Internet. Everybody's got a camera in their pocket. There's a great deal of anger about the circumstances of incarceration, about the suspension of individual rights that happened because of the Patriot Act. You know, there was blowback against those things. But at the time that they were unfolding, 
everybody was like, this is patriotism. This is what we have to do. They attacked us. And so we have to give up all of our liberties and all of our safety. Everyone was in like emergency mode. Um, mm-hmm. And so it didn't feel like you could really do anything. You couldn't do anything. Exactly. Yeah. He, you couldn't, there was, there was no way to resist. And it was very mm-hmm. scary. So I don't think that the fears that we had in those years were unfounded because uh, there are people who are still in jail without charge from that era. That's so true. Absolutely. So not to end on a downer. <laughs> yeah, not to end on a downer. Like what's one thing that you're, one project that you're working on right now that you're excited to share with the world? I'm about 85% of the way through another novel that is kind of a collection of a lot of seemingly unrelated themes and cool things that I'm interested in uh, that I've put into one book. And I'm, I'm super, super excited about it. It's uh, one of the more complicated things that I've ever written, but possibly the best thing I've ever written so far. So uh, oh I'm just trying to wrap that up. And uh, I'm very excited about it. I'm so excited about it. Do you have it. a title yet? Not one I can share. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, still in the theoretical phase. We'll keep our eyes out then. <laughs> Inshallah. Inshallah. So where can people find you on social media if they want to find out more about your new book? I'm easily found on Twitter at G Willow Wilson, all one word. Um, And you can also find a list of books and buying links at my website, www.gwillowwilson.com. And you can find us on Twitter at MipsPod, M-I-P-S-P-O-D. You know, somebody just, (laughs) I just tweeted about our like Twitter account yesterday and somebody was like, I thought this was Mipsters for a second. I was going to block you. I was like, wow, what a blast from the past. Right. I haven't heard that word for so long. (laughs) I know. I remember what a controversy that was. Muslim hipsters, right? (laughs) Oh my gosh. It was like like a scandal. Now it seems so tame, but then it was like, oh my God. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Shocking. So if you would like to email us about Mipsters (laughs) and other things from the last 20 years, (laughs) you can email us at muslimandplainsight at gmail.com. And you can subscribe to the podcast by going to muslimandplainsight.com. Oh, Willow, Jazakalika, so much for joining us. This has been wonderful and amazing and a dream come true for both of us. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. This was incredible. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's really a delight. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Wa alaikum salam.